Hello and welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom. My name is Helen Mully and the author joining you in your classroom or wherever you're listening for this episode is the writer behind an incredible series of books that blends together two intriguing, dramatic and thrillingly dangerous worlds. Trust me, if you haven't discovered vampires yet, you have got a really rollicking good read ahead of you. And it's all thanks to today's guest. Welcome to the podcast, Justin Sopfer. Thank you so much. And thank you for those lovely words. All absolutely true. So, Justin, I'm very sorry about this, but I have to start off with the really obvious question. How and when did the idea to write a pirate vampire mashup come to you? It's a great question, and I'm often asked it when I'm in school, so I'm very happy to start there. Phew. <laughs> I think people often imagine that because I have a background in publishing and marketing yeah. that I thought, oh, you know, pirates, super hot, kids love them. Vampires, really hot, major TV series. Let's mash the two together. That's absolutely not how it happened. <laughs> and actually, it's important to remember that when I had the original idea for this, it was pre-Pirates of the Caribbean. So actually... Pirates were not that hot property. I don't think anyone had done them very successfully for a while. The way the idea came to me was very simple. I was just walking around this part of North London that I live in. And um, one day the word vampires just dropped into my head. It was literally like that apple coming out of the sky. One minute, not there. Here, um, shivers up the back of my neck thinking, oh, wow. Okay, I'm in the middle of doing something else, but this is the idea I've probably been waiting for my whole life and I need to do something about it. As simple as that. Six books later. <laughs> I think it's amazing that it hadn't occurred to anyone else, to be honest. It's just such a brilliant combination. I feel so grateful. You know, when I say that it felt like the idea fell out of the sky, I do I do kind of believe in those things. And there are quite a lot of other well-known authors in Crouch End, and I feel very fortunate that I was passing as that idea dropped into my head. It could have fallen on somebody else's head. I know. And it might have turned into something completely different. Goodness me. So you, you've had the idea, you, you, this, these two words squish together and, and create this amazing new thing. But, but what then? Did you have to do lots of research? I certainly did. I mean... I said I said before, you know, tingles on the back of my neck when I first had the idea. That very quickly gave way to anxiety, palpitations, worrying that, uh, you know, my lack of experience as a writer was going to get in the way. And maybe this idea should have dropped into another author's head after all. But I think the main sticking point for me was because of the pure way the idea had landed, I didn't come at this knowing very much about vampires. I wasn't particularly into vampire shows or books. Um, and I knew almost next to nothing about pirates. So at that point, I really had a choice. Am I going to go away and become the world's greatest expert on, on pirates and vampires? And is that how this is going to mash together? Or am I going to find a more practical way of doing it? And I guess I chose some middle ground. So I spent um, a period of years, really, researching pirate history on the one hand and vampire myth on the other, and quite studiously avoiding fiction in either genre because I didn't want that to get in the way. But yeah, looking, looking at pirate history and vampire myth 
and finding ideas for particular characters within that or particular plot lines. And I think in the back of my mind, looking at ways that I could connect the two worlds so that it would feel very believable and very concrete. Because I think what I loved about that moment when the word dropped is the word immediately feels very concrete. It feels like it could be in a dictionary. Um, and in fact, I was thrilled. At one point, it landed in the Urban Dictionary. And I thought, well, that, <laughs> that's it. I've made a word. Yes, you definitely made it at that point. That, that's, that's Shakespearean, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so in the course of your research, what is something really interesting and surprising you found out about pirates? And what is something really interesting and surprising you found out about vampires? Excellent question. All right, we'll start with pirates. I think one of the most exciting things was I hadn't decided when or where I was going to set this story. So it really was an open book in the beginning. And I suppose one of the things that I quickly discovered about pirates is it's not all about the Caribbean in the 18th and 19th century. There have pretty much been pirates all over the world throughout every era of history. Um, and Actually, the same is kind of true about vampire myth, but let's focus on pirates for the moment. So one of my biggest discoveries was that there were pirates operating um, during the Roman Empire out of their base in Cilicia, and that a group of pirates had kidnapped a young Julius Caesar um, and held him for ransom. Um, and he cleverly turned the tables on them. They were rounded up and captured and came to a very sticky end. And of course, with my writer's head on, I'm like, great, that, you know, I've got to have a character who was one of the group who kidnapped Julius Caesar. And uh, as you may know, that character is one of my main vampire baddies, Sidoria. Spoiler alert, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a small spoiler. Um, on the, a teaser, I would say. <laughs> on the vampire, I mean, so actually there what I've done is I've, I've obviously got into pirate history, but actually... What I've gained from that is the basis of one of the main vampire characters. Um, I think on the whole, to be honest, the research into pirates gave me more. Um, but I suppose what I've tried to do with the vampire myth um, is to put my own take on it and to try and, um, again, because I'm aiming for something that feels concrete but appropriate for the age group that, that is going to read it, I wanted to... Um, just play around with people's expectations a little bit. So for instance, I think we all think of vampire fangs being stuck into people's necks. And that's a very over-familiar trope, uh, whether in books or TV or movies. And one of the things I found in one of my vampire encyclopedias, very useful, <laughs> is that actually vampires would often go for the thorax or the chest, which to me made a lot more sense because there's a lot of blood going on in this area around our hearts. So, you know, if you need blood quickly, why would you mess around with the neck? Why not just go straight for this? Um, and although there's not a lot of scenes of direct blood taking within um, the story, and indeed some of my villains like to drink blood out of antique wine glasses. It's much more civilised. I still, I like the idea that the thorax, <laughs> the thorax is used rather than the neck. And, uh, as I say, that that came from research. And there are other things I think that, that people might recognise, you know, obvious things like um, having to stay out of the light. Um, I haven't got beyond the first book yet. So whether there are 
things yet to be revealed about vampire strengths and weaknesses. I don't know. I mean, so far, there's been no talk of garlic. Garlic does feature um, in sort of, as as the sequence goes on, and all, all six books are set within a single year, and they all have twins, Connor and Grace Tempest, as the heroes across all six books. But the backdrop of that is that conflict between the world of the pirates and the Pirate Federation and the world of the vampires, particularly the renegade vampires, is constantly amplifying. So we're moving towards um, a situation in the final book for now, Immortal War, where there is all-out war across the oceans. But before we get to that point, one of my main characters, Cheng Li, uh, when she becomes captain of the Tiger, the Pirate Federation charges her with being the first ship that is going to go out and track and capture vampires. So she experiments with all kinds of ways of um, capturing them and keeping them contained on her ship, um, including um, garlic, including silver swords dipped in aconite. So um, again, there, there was a lot of fun research at that point, dipping into all these myths that uh, that we know bits and pieces about, but again, trying to just craft it in a nice, fresh way. Yeah, I have to say, Justin, um, as you, as you mentioned earlier, you did start writing this series and and indeed finish writing this series quite a while ago. I mean, I I don't want to make either of us feel ancient, but <laughs> when you were writing the first one, most of our listeners weren't even born. <laughs> That is a bit scary. <laughs> but they have just been reissued with some very cool new cover art. Um, and I read the the first book of the series for the first time recently, and it was so fresh and so exciting. And the writing just leapt off the page at me. Thank you. A really, really great reading experience. And it occurred to me that actually, although, as you said right at the start, we tend to think of, of pirates as as being in the, the 17th century and, and vampires being back in the, the mists of ancient time, you've chosen to set this series quite a way in the future. Now, why did you do that? I think a few reasons. I thought people would expect it to be set in the past. And I think people would have quite specific expectations of when it would be, either to do with the golden age of piracy or the kind of era that vampire stories are often set in. So I'm always interested in playing against expectation. And I think particularly with this idea, that was important to me. And again, just in terms of building the concreteness of this world, I was trying to think logically about a new dawn of piracy. And actually, when I started working on the book, there were some fairly horrific news stories about contemporary pirates. Mm. Um, and I thought, well, I could set this in the present, but I, I actually thought that was going to be um, a bit too scary for all of us. Um, to make that work. It wasn't the kind of rollicking, swashbuckling adventure I wanted to write. Yeah. And I, so I, one of my inspirations was around the whole idea of global warming and the rise in sea levels, um, which sadly, you know, when I was working on the books originally, first one published in 2005, you know, this was a reality then, and it's even more of a reality. Here we are in 2021, which is 
extremely concerning. But there is there is this basis through global warming and, and the rise in sea levels that has enabled a new dawn of piracy. So I felt like there was a logic there. And although I don't hammer the conservation theme as much as I might, and indeed, you know, in some ways, if I was writing a new book now, I might hammer it a little bit more because I'm so concerned about it. And I suppose the third reason was to do with my female characters. One of my frustrations when I was researching pirate history was trying to find really amazing women pirates that I could weave into the story or at least take elements of. And I suppose the two that you come across most often are Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. But the thing that frustrated me about their story, although it's a very good story and other writers have have built on it extremely well, is that they had to disguise themselves as men to be on board a pirate ship to work on it. And I didn't want that. You know, I always envisaged this series um, with a strong uh, male and female hero in Connor and Grace. And I wanted the women characters to be standing shoulder to shoulder with the male characters or actually a couple of steps in front of them, to be honest. <laughs> and, and so I got a bit frustrated with that. And that was one of the reasons why I thought, well, if I just move this story into the future, I can start to make um, some of those rules. That makes complete sense. And as a reader, it it definitely really works. It, it, it's almost timeless, really. You, you've placed us in this world and we just take it as it is because it's so vivid and so convincing. And on that note, I can't wait anymore. I really, really need you to read some of the stories so that our listeners get an idea of just how exciting and thrilling these books are. So if it's all right, Justin, I'm just going to pause the recording for a moment while you grab a copy of the first book in the Vampires series, Demons of the Ocean, and then we'll come back and you can read a little bit for us. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom with our very special guest for this episode, Vampires author Justin Sompa. Justin, you are going to read to us from the first book in the series, Demons of the Ocean Now. Before you start, could you just give us an idea of what's happening in the story so far so we can all put ourselves properly in the picture? Totally. So at the start of the story, Grace Tempest almost drowns as a result of a shipwreck. And in that shipwreck, her brother Connor, her twin brother, goes missing. Grace wakes up to find herself on the deck of a ship. She's been rescued by a young Irish lad called Midshipman Lorcan Fury. And Lorcan takes Grace to a cabin on the ship and tells her to stay there for her own protection by orders of the captain. And by the way, keep the curtain across the porthole closed at all times. Grace hears some fairly disturbing conversations outside on the deck of this ship. Members of the crew talking about how hungry they are, how much they're looking forward to the feast. Inside the cabin, Grace finds she's incredibly sleepy and she keeps losing track of time between Lorcan's visits. Then she starts hearing the captain's voice, but not out there, inside her head, as this mysterious whisper. So questions are piling up in Grace's mind. Where am I? What happened to my brother? What kind of ship is this? And she remembers this strange sea shanty that her father used to sing to the twins 
I'll tell you a tale of vampire. It's a tale as old as true. Grace feels she can instinctively trust Lorcan, but but what if that isn't the case? So finally, she traps him in her cabin and she starts asking him some seriously burning questions. Grace's heart was racing. She stood by the porthole, touching the curtain. Lorcan sat in the chair on the other side of the cabin. It was a fair compromise. He swore that he wouldn't attack her, but how could she be sure, knowing what she now knew? As long as she held the curtain, she bought herself some fragile kind of safety. If he so much as moved towards her, she would expose the light again and force him to retreat once more. It was weird thinking of him in this way. He looked about as far from being a monster as he could be. He was her ally, the one who'd saved her life. Could he really intend her harm? Could he really be a... Uh, she couldn't even bring herself to frame the word yet. How old are you? she asked instead. I'm 17, he said, but I thought you knew that already. I mean, what year were you born? Ah, he smiled, nodding, but not answering. What year, Lorcan? I need to know. 1803. So, in fact, you're 709 years old. It, it doesn't work like that, Grace. It's hard to explain. I'm 17. That's the age I was when I crossed. And that's the age I'll always be. Yes, but you have been roaming this earth and these seas for over seven centuries. Time moves very differently on this side, Lorcan said quietly. Though, truth to tell, I've lost much sense of what it was like before. You've forgotten your life. He shook his head. Far from it. I remember the facts of my life well enough. I remember my time in Dublin and all that happened to me. I remember how it ended. But it's like a story someone told me over and over again. I know every last detail, but I don't remember how it felt to be alive. Grace looked at the boy before her, just four years older than her by one measure, and yet a world away by another. It was hard to take in. When you cross over, he explained, you lose the old rhythms. I can walk and talk like before. I can help to sail a fine ship such as this. But I can't feel the things you feel. It's hard to describe, Grace. What I'd give to feel, just for a moment, what you feel. Even your pain would be better than this numbness. Grace frowned. What did he know of her pain? If he'd care to change places with her, she was ready to consider it. Her anger soon dissolved as she noticed a strange expression passing across his face. Just for a moment, he didn't look like the Lorcan she knew. His eyes seemed as empty as the eyes of a statue. His nostrils flared, and as his mouth opened, she caught sight of an uncommon sharpness to one of his teeth. Grace shivered. He looked like the other one, Sidorio. Then it hit her. There were others like him on board. Many others.
Ah, that's left me with shivers. <laughs> Good. No, <laughs> such a powerful piece of writing, Justin. You've got two amazingly strong characters in, in such a strange situation with that undercurrent of, of mystery and danger, but also, I think, fascination as well. I wonder when you're writing a series like this, when you're starting off with the first book in the series, how much of what is going to happen is is already in your head? And, and if so, how hard is it to keep it so that you're revealing little bits of it at a time to the reader and not just go, no, no, this is, all, let me tell you all about it now because it's all really exciting. How do you do that? Uh, well, thank you uh, again. I mean, yeah, it's... Um... I think I had an idea of a lot of the overarching story and obviously some of the key secrets when I started writing the series. And I mean, just in terms of the practicalities of the publishing contract, I got a deal initially for writing four Vampirates books based on the first eight chapters and a synopsis of the first book and some smaller synopses of the next three. Um, and as I started writing the books, they became more concrete, more epic, more subtle, I think. And really, although it is high concept in terms of the concept, to me, it's entirely driven by the characters. Yeah. And, you know, not just Grace and Connor, but but the characters like Lorcan and Sidorio and Cheng Li and Jez Stukely, these are very key characters um, as the story goes on. So what's interesting to me is, I mean, I haven't read that extract um, myself for quite some time and it's kind of given me some tingles as well. And it's interesting how much of the relationship between Grace and Lorcan is embedded in that extract in the first book. But there was plenty that I didn't know about him and I didn't know about them at that point. And I think what I really wanted to do with this as a sequence is I never wanted to fall into the trap of writing the same book twice or a third time. I really wanted each book, although they are sequential and although they take place over the course of a year with the same characters in them, I really wanted each book to feel like it was a step on from the last one and to take us into different areas. So, for instance, by the time you come to the fourth book, Blackheart, um, we find out a whole backstory to Grace and Connor's life, which really wasn't even in my mind when I started the sequence, but actually it was a response to questions readers were asking me and that I felt I then had to uh, think about carefully and and go into. That's really interesting. And also I have made a note to myself, I completely need to read the rest of the books in the series because <laughs> I've got to find out what these, these secrets are. Um, I think the other thing that comes out of that extract and which I think is often a challenge for writers, especially young writers, and I think some of our listeners will be familiar with this, and that's writing dialogue and writing dialogue that does what you need it to do so it moves the story forward but it also tells you something about the characters who are speaking and on top of all that it, it sounds natural it flows um do you do you find that hard as, as a writer I mean how how do you how do you do it to be honest with you I don't find it hard I love writing dialogue 
I often say, you know, there was that wonderful comic actress, uh, Beryl Reed, who mm. always used to say that, you know, to get inside a character's head, she had to find the right shoes. <laughs> to me, to me with a character, I really need to know what their voice is. And I have a lot of characters on the pages of these books. I think by the time I'd written the third one, Blood Captain, I totaled up about 60 named characters that had appeared. So obviously, you know, that can present a challenge for readers, but I didn't want it to be challenging. I wanted them to have a chapter like this, which is, you know, quite largely driven by dialogue, but to have a very clear idea of who was speaking. um, So I didn't have to keep doing he said, she said. But I think also, as you've alluded to, not just who is speaking, but as well as what they are saying, what they're not saying. And I love that. And I think in many ways, being an author, you are like an actor who gets to play all the parts in in the show. Scarily. <laughs> but very exciting and powerful at the, at yeah. the same time. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna make you choose now, Justin. Is it more fun? writing pirates or vampires? Uh, Again, that's a great question. Um, I thought actually you might ask me something that that I'm asked (laughs) occasionally, which is would I rather be a pirate or a vampire? But I'd rather (laughs) answer your question. (laughs) Well, and again, you know, I think what what you've hinted out there is that actually throughout the course of these books, we're moving between the world of pirates and vampires a lot. So, you know, Grace is immersed in the world of the vampires. And I think what's lovely is, she is not terrified of them. She's really fascinated by them and she really enjoys their outsider status, which is something she can relate to. And then meanwhile, Connor is on board a pirate ship and he is plugging into the world of what it means to be a pirate. I think inevitably, um, sometimes the scenes with the pirates are a bit lighter and brighter and the scenes with the vampires uh, can be more intense as that one was. So certainly when I was writing the books, I might find that, you know, I was getting a bit weighed down by some of the um, emotional plots within the vampire world. And I needed to get into the pirate world just for some light and some sea and some, you know, (laughs) uh, some life. Um, But equally, you know, then I would be drawn back into the quietness and the intensity of the vampire realm. And, you know, I, I love that juxtaposition. I mean, again, just to go back to that extract, I think one of the things that I was trying to capture, maybe not even consciously, is that separation you have between a mortal and an immortal. So, you know, for me, one of the most powerful pieces of writing I experienced as a child myself was the end of Peter Pan, where Peter goes back and, you know, Wendy is a middle-aged woman and he's still exactly as he was. And again, as I'm talking to you, I'm feeling a bit chilly describing this because it's such an emotional scene. And I remember, uh, you know, when Doctor Who was rebooted and you had the relationship between David Tennant's Doctor Who and his traveling partner, Rose. Again, there was that real poignancy between, you know, this is somebody who I want to spend time with, who I want to be very close to, but but we're fundamentally very different. You know, one one of us is bound by mortal laws and the other one isn't. Um, And so that's something that I've loved exploring through the books. 
It's a really exciting and interesting concept, isn't it? And I'm I'm really hoping that our listeners are hearing what you're saying and are having lots of ideas fizzing and popping in their head for, for their own scenarios that they might write about, their own relationships that they might write about. And on that note, I am just going to remind teachers and parents who are listening that we do produce a free resources pack to go with every episode of Author in Your Classroom, which gives children the chance to take all the advice and the ideas that come up in the episode and put them into action in their own writing. You can download all the packs from plazoom.com and the details are in the episode notes. Justin, we're nearly out of time for this episode, believe it or not, um, but there are still a few more things I wanted to ask you. So I'm just going to pause for a moment while everybody rushes off and looks at presume.com to find the resources pack. And then we'll be right back for a little more Vampirates talk. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom with today's guest, author Justin Somper. Justin, we talked earlier about how it's been quite a while since the sixth book in the Vampirates series was first published. And as I understand it, and as I said earlier, I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to, whilst it it wrapped up a lot of elements of the story, I think it did leave a few threads that could be picked up to take readers on a new vampire's journey. So I'm going to press you to the wall here and ask you, will there be at any point another vampire's story? I'd love to write a new vampire's story. Um, and I think that wasn't the case when I finished the, the sixth book. I, I had a kind of sense of relief of finishing, um, you know, th- a number of years work. Um, and a number of books, which, as we touched on earlier, had not been planned in super detail. So, you know, I didn't have that J.K. Rowling-like vision of how the books were going to unfold. So I finished book six with a huge sense of relief that I had brought my characters home safe, which which sometimes means what I said, and sometimes it means they come to an end, but it's a noble and appropriate end. But as you've said, I did leave some threads hanging at the end of the story. And I did that for two reasons. One, I wanted the option to go back into this world as and when I felt ready to. Yeah. But I also wanted readers to have the sense that we've come into this world and we've spent time with these characters and we've got to know them. And just because there isn't another book immediately, this world is still going on. These characters are still there. Um, so that's kind of what I wanted to evoke at, at the end of, of uh, book six. And I suppose, you know, I've I, it's been absolutely lovely, the books coming out of these amazing new editions um, from UCLAN. And one of my contributions to those new editions was to create a new story at the end of each of them, uh, which is effectively Grace interviewing one of the vampires about how they crossed, what their mortal life was like, how they died and where they've been traveling since then. Um, And you asked me earlier about uh, my love of dialogue and and the way different characters speak. What was thrilling for me was when I nervously but excitedly sat down to write fresh interviews with six of my main characters. 
their voices were so ready to get going and to talk to me. It was like they were actors who'd kind of been waiting for the phone call to come back on set. So um, I found it I found it really easy and delicious to go back into the world of vampires. And I do have ideas for um, different routes in that we could go back into this world. So now I just need teachers up and down the land to take <laughs> these books back to their hearts uh, and children too. And there we go. How on earth could we possibly get that message out to teachers up and down the land, Justin? I, I, don't I, know. I can't Let's have a imagine. Think. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love that so much, though. And that is, now you say that, I can see that that is common to all of the books that I love the most. The idea that the world in which they're set is still there and I can I can go there whenever I like and, and find out what's happening to the characters with, with just a little um, flip of my imagination. I can go back to Narnia when I want to. I think that's really, really important. So if you're not writing any vampires books right now, what are you doing? Um, I'm writing a whole new thing, a whole new book, which we hope might be the start of a new uh, Supernatural series. Again, for the same kind of age group, so sort of top end of middle grade. And I'm not allowed to say too much about it, but like I say, it's got a strong supernatural element. So again, we have the world of the dead crossing into the world of the living. Um, This time it's set in the present um, in California, and there's an idyllic town, a beautiful town that has a very dark and interesting secret to it. And um, I have a displaced teenage girl from London this time who arrives in this um, beautiful Californian town and starts to see things as they really are. And I should probably stop talking about it at that point. Oh, no, that sounds absolutely brilliant. Justin, will you promise to tell us about it first when you're allowed to tell us more? Yes, I'd love to. Marvellous. Well, Justin, we're going to have to wrap this episode up pretty soon. But I have to say, as I was reading Demons of the Ocean, something did occur to me. So right from the start of the story, as you've already mentioned, there's a particular song that is key to the plot and it's a it, it's a sea shanty basically about the vampires um, and so I want to know especially after a certain recent viral trend <laughs> on TikTok A does it have a tune and B can you sing it <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna ask I'm gonna answer both those questions um and give you another and and and, and the other answer I just want to start off with on that is the shanty was very, very interesting to me because we talked right at the start of our conversation about the idea for vampires and then how I went into a phase of research to, to make the whole thing work. Now, the interesting thing was while I was doing that, I forget which side of my brain this would have been, <laughs> but while I was doing the logical research and making loads of notes and really having headaches about how I was going to make th- this work and how I could connect the world. The strangest thing was that this song started writing itself in my head. And um, the answer is no, it doesn't have a tune. And that's because I can't sing. And I really should have some singing lessons. Now, you know, a few um, industrious readers 
have set it to music. So if you go online, you can find um, some versions of it. But to my mind, the ones that have been done so far are a bit on the slow side. So obviously, as you say, in the wake of um, sea shanties becoming such a viral thing, I would love someone else, perhaps somebody in the charts themselves, to pick up my shanty and, uh, you know, give it some welly. <laughs> so I can perform it, but I cannot sing it. There you go. So if any of our talented listeners fancies coming up with a tune for the Vampire's Shanty, Justin and I would both love to hear it. You can get in touch with me by emailing schools at presume.com and you can find Justin on Twitter. So how about that? Absolutely. And <laughs> um, just to give you a taste of the shanty, just the first bit of it, I'll tell you a tale of vampires, a tale as old as true. Yes, I'll sing you a song of an ancient ship and its mighty fearsome crew. I'll sing you a song of an ancient ship that sails the ocean's blue, that haunts the ocean's blue. Oh, there you go. That is in your head, isn't it? You can just recite it at a moment's notice. It's fantastic. <laughs> you know, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Justin, thank you so much for being our guest today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I've had a fantastic time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you too to all our listeners. It wouldn't be the same without you. We'll be back with another author in your classroom very soon. Until then, take care and happy reading. Author in Your Classroom is brought to you by Plazoom, where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring, ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum. So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATS revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week. Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best-loved children's writers. Plus, there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible. So please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen with Author in Your Classroom and Plazoom.